Welcome to another edition of my Jewish and Israeli Issues podcast. Now, I couldn't do this without your support. So a very special thank you to Lawrence Reich, Jamie Gould, Ben Jacobs, Ida Simons and Karen Taylor, all of whom who've made donations via my Patreon website, patreon.com slash Johnny Gould. Sincerely, thank you. Two guests today. The first, when I asked him if Islamic scholar was a good description, his humble reply was to ask to be called a seeker of knowledge. His name is Jassim Tamim. He's a London cab driver who first came to prominence when he phoned Majid Noaz's LBC show to discuss UKIP's ideas for a Muslim-only prison. Soon, though, the conversation between them veered into his studies at the Islamic College in Neesden, where he studies anti-Semitism. Muslims are not stupid, you know, they're not, uh, you know, we know, we know what communists think about Islam. <laughs> and uh, we know that it's only about uh, getting Muslims' votes. And I would like to see the, the, the left to stop playing with the, our feelings and stop acting as if they were uh, supporting us by supporting uh, so-called uh, Arab state in uh, on the land of Israel. This is not gonna get get them nowhere. So we need to stop waving those flags in your in your in your congr- in your uh, assemblies, please, because it's it's really disgusting. It's just I mean I find it very very offensive to the British people, to Muslims, to to the Jewish people, especially in this climate. Jasim's phone call to LBC was also the trigger for Rachel Riley's journey into anti-Semitism. My second guest is Richard Millet. Since 2009, Richard has blogged about growing anti-Semitism in British society, whether it be on university campus or outside shops in Covent Garden. He often found himself in the same room as a curious backbencher, Jeremy Corbyn, as the audience openly applauded speakers who'd compared Israel with Nazi Germany. It is Richard who Corbyn was referring to when he said British scientists clearly have two problems – One is they don't want to study history, and secondly, having lived in this country for a very long time, probably all their lives, they don't understand English irony either. That comment othered not just me, but vicariously, it it othered you, and it othered the rest of the 280,000 Jews in this country. It basically implied that we don't belong in this country, that we don't understand uh, an English facet. We, we don't grasp Englishness. Um, and even though we lived here most of our lives, on the same direction, basically implying that you know, he didn't see us really as being part and parcel of British society. Corbyn added they needed two lessons which we could perhaps help them with. So Richard will be along for that. First, though, born and raised in Agadir, Morocco, Jassim Tamim left his home nation with his mother for Italy. But after a childhood he describes as being an outsider, he and his mum came to London. Initially, Muslim immigrants were welcomed in Italy, not by the state, but by the church, clothed, fed and found jobs. But then that wasn't to last, because in Italy, when they welcome you, they welcome you in the name of Christ, but not as a person he says, a hint at religious forms of political correctness. And when he lived in Italy, such was the closed society, he said he had to be self-sufficient to be himself. Jassim's religious practice became deeper in Europe than it was back home in Morocco. 
practicing Islam and even Islamism is a reaction to the political correctness of Western society. This, he says, is a search for our own distinct identity. He is seeking from Islamic scripture an explanation for Jewish homeland. He says, it's my religious duty to project Jews and support the state of Israel against the terrorists who hijack my religion and keep hostage my brothers and sisters in Gaza. He also has an unequivocal message for Jeremy Corbyn on anti-Semitism and his support for Palestine. This is Jasim Tamim. I'm just being myself. I don't, I don't have any good reason uh, to do this or to speak up apart of being myself. Uh, being honest and just telling what, what I feel about uh, the situation of anti-Semitism in the UK. Probably I'm just, uh, by doing this, I'm trying to, to be, uh, to pay back the favour that this country did to me and to my family. Uh, I mean, I've, I found safety here, I found uh, my dignity. I am, uh, when I go to work, I'm not worried about uh, what's going to happen to my mum or my sisters or my kids. Uh, I know that people, they, they are welcoming us. So probably my reaction to anti-Semitism is just like, I, uh, I didn't accept it. Probably I did spot anti-Semitism because myself, I am, uh, I've been subjected to, to religious intolerance almost all my life. Where did you suffer religious intolerance? It's not in your home country of Morocco, is it? Because no. in between Morocco and living in the UK, you lived in Italy. It's difficult to speak uh, in these terms on your, about a place where you lived uh, almost, almost all your life and you have, you have good memories. And, uh, Italy is a very nice country and uh, it's very civilized and it's, it's, it's an amazing civilization. Italian people are amazing. They are my people. I don't, I don't reject them. I don't blame them. But unfortunately, the composition of the Italian society and the composition of the Italian politics and the interference of the church in, in every aspect of life uh, it did make a difference on my on my journey on my on my on, on on what I did and what I saw what I heard in that country. So yeah, you can call it uh, religious intolerance. Uh, I call it just just like a manufacturing default. It's like a sort of religious version of political correctness because just before we put the tape on, Jasim, you said in Italy they welcome you, but they welcome you in the name of Christ, but not as a person. That to me sounds like a form of political correctness from a religious era, which means that if you are not a Catholic or a form of Christian, then there's kind of no place for you. They won't understand you as a Muslim or a Jew, a Hindu, a Sikh. Oh, definitely. Just to, just to give an exa- a few examples, when, when, the, when the first waves of migration started to Italy, the, the first uh, institution that stood beside migrants and uh, gave them any form of ID or, or health care or food or shelter was the church, was the Catholic Church. We have an institution called uh, Caritas, is the, which, which is a, means charity. This institution was doing exactly what, what the state was supposed to do. And uh, the, 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 the priests, they used to open the churches because they have a they have lot of properties, a lot of buildings. They used to open their churches for, for new migrants and they used to, to, to give a housing to the families 
and food and jobs and they used to look after the kids uh, your kids when you go to work they used to do all these amazing things uh, they used even to give us uh, space to play Friday prayer until the church find, found out that there will be no uh, change in this situation that Muslims they, w- they will be they would uh, they will never change religion so there, it's amazingly there was there was a, a letter from uh, from the Vatican city of Vatican uh, forbidding to the priests to give space of worship to Muslims and that was for me the changing point in uh, in the, the church policy towards Muslims so uh, what I, why I'm saying this because Italy is a democratic country secular uh, regime uh, we have elections we have uh, similar to, 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 to the UK in the, as a system but the church is uh, still influent and have a, doesn't play a direct role in uh, in the politics, but it plays a direct role on the on people's uh, opinion, and uh, this factor uh, played on our favor as newcomers to that country, but also it turned against us, especially from 9/11 onwards. Justine, that is a very profound thing you say, and that underlines the huge difference between British and Italian society. A quite profound comment that you've made about being a Muslim in continental Europe, in southern Europe, and a Muslim here in this country. So let's bring it back to why you're speaking out. Justine, you must have tensions that you suffer from within your own community by speaking out like this. You must have encountered anti-Semitism amongst your friends, at your mosque, within your community. It must be very hard for you to do what you're doing. When I joined the University of uh, Middlesex uh, through the Islamic College of Inisdan, I started studying Islamic studies. Uh, it is something that uh, I always wanted to do, but I couldn't achieve while I was living in Italy. Uh, so last two years I had more time, more spare time for myself. And uh, I joined this course and I started studying uh, Islamic studies in academic way. In doing so, I was going to the history of Islam and the formation period. And uh, what strikes me is the, is the relation between uh, the Prophet Muhammad and the Jews of Medina. And, uh, yeah, and that was one of my first uh, ever uh, essay written in English. Uh, it, was, it wasn't that easy, but alhamdulillah, I had like 75%. That's quite a complicated way to introduce yourself to English. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Yeah, but it is it is because it's provocative, so y- right. you learn quicker because you have to ex- ex- uh, express yourself and your opinions in something which is related to your life. So because I because being a Muslim, I I must believe that the Prophet Muhammad is prophet of God, from God. So to keep that belief uh, going on uh, and never ha- have it compromised, I need to understand and find uh, an answer to every question that comes to my mind. You are fighting for the soul of your religion against people who want to kill Jews in every single place in Israel and around the world. And that is the charter of Hamas, it is the charter of Hezbollah, it is why Israel defends itself uh, with such determination. How are you going to win that one? What is coming out of Iran, what is coming out of uh, Hezbollah, what is coming out of largely the, the Shia world at this moment? Is something that is so massive. How are you gonna? How are you gonna deal with that? It sounds like a big problem, but it's a bunch of small ones. Right. So we need to split the problem and uh, and give and name things with its their names. 
we need to understand what is religious, what is political, what is social, what is historical, what is uh, what can be solved and what cannot be solved. Once we do this, once we look to the problem in this uh, from this perspective, I think we're halfway from the solution. But if we keep being uh, emotional and we start thinking as a Muslim first, and we start uh, uh, believing whatever we are told in the name of Allah and the name of the Prophet, uh, then our reaction will be definitely wrong, because we will be the, the when you, when emotional come into into play, the rational. Uh, steps back. So we need to make sure that we are emotional and rational at the same time. We should. We need to think. We need to find answers to Hamas claims at at every scale, yeah. from the historical, political, social, and religious one. And my role as a student of Islamic studies is to find the answer from the religious role. And I can assure you, Alhamdulillah, I can go on talking about this for hours. And I have evidences from the Quran, from the Sunnah, from the Torah that. Islam is not about forcing people to change their religion and Islam is not about states or the nations or the or borders and the, the claim that the, the, the nation of Israel is, was, uh, was like uh, uh, an offense to, to the Islamic world I think this claim has no roots in, 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 our, in our religion and if you go back to the history the start of the conflict this conflict was started in first place by uh, people born in Islamic countries, but they are not Muslim at all. If you go to the history of uh, Mr. Nasser, the general of uh, Egypt, if you go to the, uh, the party of Ba'at in Syria, in Iraq, these this parties and these uh, this political uh, entities, they have no uh, connection whatsoever with Islam. Even the LP, uh, the OLP, the Arafat organization, at their start, they used to be communist. They used to be uh, they used to be secular, and they carried on this fight until until they lost it. Until they they they, they were trapped into signing this this peace agreement. Then when they lost the fight, then they hand over the the flag to to Hamas, which is Islamic. So basically, Islam was brought into it just lately. You know, so that that's very important for me as a, as a Muslim. There's a saying in Israel to parallel what you're saying, which is if Israel put down their weapons they would be destroyed. If the Arabs put down their weapons, there would be no more war. And so what I want to do in this short conversation is consolidate what you've said about the political Muslim world and Israel's determination, the Jewish state's determination, to be the final place for the wandering Jew to stop wandering around. Okay. I want to ask this question to anyone who claims that me as a Muslim I need to be anti-Israel. I want to ask them based on what, what, on what basis uh, we need to fight and die for something called Jordan or Egypt or uh, Lebanon or any, any of those names that just came to existence in the last 80 years anyway. I mean, I mean if you look to the map most of the Arab countries, they were, they were the consequence of withdrawal of the, the empires, the colonial, colonial empires. But what about dying for Israel? Look, Israel is a nation amongst others. This is, this is the evolution, natural evolution of the political system in the area. Before we used to have the caliphate, we, used to have, we never have nation states. When we start having nation states, so people they start making their own groups and their own arrangements. So it is, for me it's natural that Jewish people they have their own state. So there is nothing religious uh, to motivate 
fight against Israel. For me, the claim that we need to kill Jewish people because of the Al-Aqsa or whatever, this, this, these are all lies. Yeah, yeah. These are all political, uh, political uh, moves that they were, they were put in place by people, as I said, that have nothing to do with Islam, and they wanted to motivate uh, Muslims to go to die. So they, 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 they went to dig into history about anything against the Jew, about anything against the land of Israel. Yeah. And uh, I think time has come for us to stand up to, against these this false, falsities and, and, and expose them. So these are 20th and 21st century politicized concepts of Islam, which is bastardizing, which is corrupting Islam, in your opinion. And so now I understand the basis by which you are studying anti-Semitism and why you're speaking out, and very solid it appears to me. And let's go back to uh, Rachel Riley here, because it's Rachel, on, on her huge odyssey of fighting anti-Semitism almost every hour on Twitter, I think, just as you do, uh, she said that back in September she listened to a call uh, that you made to Majid Noaz on LBC, and you described the fear in the Jewish community that, that you'd noticed on a couple of specific occasions as a cab driver around London. And she says that from her dealings with you, you're a mensch, which is a Yiddish word for a, an upstanding gentleman, and you're, she's really glad that you're getting the opportunity to have your voice heard. You're the voice of love and tolerance, a credit to Britain and Islam. And you can quote me on that. So, Rachel, I have quoted you on that. Jasim, it is really, really important to have these discussions because so many of us, not just in the Jewish community, but the wider secular community, feel that there's a hands-off discussion um, with any Muslim amongst Muslim people. And I, they, don't, they don't talk. I mean, no, I mean, right. I, you know what is my issue in this is like, it's, uh, I don't want Muslim people to respect the Jew and have a good conversation with them and good neighborhood just because the law forbids it. I want them to 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 to, to be to feel close to the Jew. I want Muslim to discover the root, the Judaic roots in Islam. I mean, in in our religion, in the in the very composition of our religion. We are, uh, we are supposed to believe that we are the natural evolution of Judaism. So Judaism is our roots. We can't, we, even, even if Jewish people, they turn up and they say, we don't want you, we can't do nothing about it because this is our history. This is our, this is our fate. We believe in, a, in a, let's say, an updated version of Judaism, and this is what is Islam. I came across that in Birmingham on Belgrave Middleway when uh, it was described the Koran on the side of the Birmingham Central Mosque as the, uh, the final testament. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I looked at that as a student of the Old Testament and thought, oh right, that's, uh, that's a very interesting thing. That taught me a great deal about what Islam was being taught in, in that building. But as, as a Muslim, protecting the Jew is our religious duty. Because if we don't protect the Jew, we don't protect uh, uh, humanity, we don't protect ourselves, we don't protect our roots. And now, because of political correctness or because of political uh, rivality be, be, between uh, uh, a, a terroristic uh, state, which is uh, Hamas, and uh, a corrupt uh, entity, which is OLP, I mean, these people, they don't represent me. I want to see these people in front of uh, 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 international tribunals to answer for their crimes. 
I don't want to see them having a state. That's why it hurts me when I heard uh, Jeremy Corbyn talking about what the first thing they would be, they, he would be doing uh, as soon as he takes office to recognize uh, some sort of Arab state. In, uh, I mean, uh, some some political uh, correctness has to, to come to an end about this. Quite aside from his first day declaration of a state for Palestine, what is your message to Jeremy Corbyn and the frontline leadership of the Labour Party over their, well, what I think their completely disreputable conduct of anti-Semitism? Um, I don't know if I'm in position to give any message to Jeremy Corbyn because he's a... Uh He's a leader, and he's he, he was born in this country, and I'm, I'm a newcomer, so I'm not going to lecture him in, in democracy. But I want just to, to, to assure him that Muslims are not stupid. You know, they're not. Uh, you know, we know we know what communist thinks about Islam, <laughs> and uh, we know that it's only about uh, getting Muslims vote. And I would like to see the the, the left to stop playing with the, our feelings and stop acting as if they were. Uh, supporting us by supporting uh, so-called uh, Arab state in uh, on the land of Israel. This is not going to get get them nowhere. So we need to stop waving those flags in your in your in your, in your uh, assemblies, please, because it's it's really disgusting. It's just I mean I find it very very offensive to the British people, to Muslims, to to the Jewish people, and especially in this climate. I mean, our, you see the flag of IS, it's a black flag, and it, what is written on it, it's exactly what every Muslim believes. It's written on it, La ilaha illa Muhammad Rasulullah, there's no God but Allah, and uh, Muhammad is his prophet. I won't be able to, to wave this flag in a Congress because of what it represents in people's minds. For people, they perceive it as, uh, for British people, they perceive it as, as a threat, as the flag of the, the Islamic State. But because it's, it, it, it is offensive to British people, I will not wave it. So I don't understand why Jeremy Corbyn and his supporters, they wave uh, this uh, black, white and red flag in, uh, in their Congresses when they know what does it represent for the Jewish people, when they know that this entity pays salaries to the families of the suicide bombers. You understand? So Jeremy Corbyn needs to understand, <laughs> understand what, what he's playing with. He's playing with people's life. He's playing with people's feelings. And whoever does it, maybe he will win an election, but he will never win my respect. Jasim, that was profound. You are a mensch, as Rachel says, and thank you very much for your time this morning. You're welcome, sir. Richard Millett's long-standing activism for Israel and the Jewish people is my next focus. Richard's late father created the Millett's chain of outdoor equipment around the country. Over the years, Richard has highlighted how universities, charities, churches, professional bodies and parliament are being utilised to give the lies spread about Israel the veneer of respectability. He's been defended by UK lawyers for Israel, who've defended him against false harassment allegations made to the police for merely filming hardened anti-Israel protesters. But Richard's decade of work came to prominence when a video emerged of Jeremy Corbyn claiming he and other Zionists had two problems. One, they didn't want to study history. And secondly, having lived in this country for a very long time, probably all their lives, they didn't understand English irony either. Corbyn knew Richard was Jewish when he made his English irony comment, but even if he hadn't known, it does imply Corbyn thinks someone isn't properly English. Richard Millett, you have been at the vanguard of reporting anti-Zionism and anti-Semitism for 10 years when it was on the fringes of our society 
focusing on people who were on the fringes of society, who are now on the front bench of the opposition. Could you have imagined when you started doing this work that it could end like this? I don't think anyone ever thought it would end like this, Johnny. I went to these events in 2009, started recording, and what I was more concerned about really was the fact that these rooms were full of white British middle-class people. If it was full of Palestinian or Arab and Middle Eastern people, I would have kind of understood that they're concerned for the Palestinians, but it, it wasn't at all. It was basically British white middle-class people who were literally applauding constant comparisons of Jews to Nazis and the Palestinians being in concentration camps. And I, I couldn't actually believe what I was watching and what I was observing. And Jeremy Corbyn was at these events, but at the time, Johnny, he was, he was an absolute irrelevance and meaningless. And people even said to me, people, friends and colleagues, say, why do you go to these events? You know, these people like Corbyn and, and the Labour politicians who were there, they're never going to achieve any type of power. So all you're doing is actually making a fuss where no fuss needs to be made. As we see now, 2019, he's on the verge of possibly becoming the Prime Minister of this country. So you, perhaps more than most, would have understood when people started sponsoring him for the leadership, like Sadiq Khan, the current Mayor of London, saying we need to broaden and widen the socialist-stroke-Labour Party debate. And when he won, and where he won by such a convincing margin, was that a shock or a surprise or something that you were expecting? I don't think anything, anyone expected Corbyn to win the leadership. I think even the people who nominated him didn't expect him to win the leadership. They just nominated him out of the fact that let's have a proper democratic debate. But the last thing anyone who nominated him, I think, expected him was was to win the leadership of um, the Labour Party and become a potential prime minister of this country but because he has done uh, this is why all of a sudden all the stuff that I had been writing up from 2009 or between 2009 and 2013 about him has suddenly been dug up from my blog all the events he was at where he was applauding the Naturi Carter who called for the destruction of Israel, uh, where he was at events where Nazi comparisons to Jews were made and he did nothing there to stop those comparisons or intervene to say anything was wrong. He would just quietly observe um, and I think that's a shock really that the potential Prime Minister was at so many of these events calling Hamas and Hezbollah his friends, rubbing shoulders with some very, very nasty people, attending uh, funerals uh, at certain uh, places where allegedly, you know, those people were responsible for um, the murder of innocent Israeli athletes. Uh, it, it, it's all very worrying for all of us to see the potential sight of Hamas and Hezbollah being regular invitees to number 10 Downing Street is, I think, going to be very p potentially frightening for this small Jewish community. At some point, he will no longer be the leader of the Labour Party. And, you know, most people are saying, well, the Labour Party is lost perhaps to the social democratic arm uh, or wing of the party and that the new leader will also come from the left. So, Rich, do you think the genie is out the bottle, that this kind of anti-Semitism which he has enabled, which he has unleashed, is now a permanent fixture in British society? Well, Johnny, I think we're in a no-win situation here. 
do we want Corbyn to become Prime Minister or do we want Corbyn to lose the leadership of the, of the Labour Party? What's the worst situation for the Jewish community? If he becomes Prime Minister, we're on, we're on a, a big loser, as I've just said about all the uh, recognition of Palestine uh, with all that entails. I'm not saying that there shouldn't be an eventual Palestinian state, but not a Palestinian state that hasn't agreed to recognise Israel as a Jewish state. Uh, Hamas and Hezbollah. Um, but if he doesn't become Prime Minister, then who's going to be blamed for him not being Prime Minister? It's going to be us yet again who's going to be blamed for Corbyn not being Prime Minister. And as you have seen on Twitter, um, the absolute vitriol that is thrown at anyone who even slightly stands up for Israel. Um, you could probably magnify that a hundred times if these people who are so enamoured by Corbyn, so passionate about him becoming Prime Minister, and if he doesn't become Prime Minister, we are all going to be blamed for that. And, and the backlash either way against us. So yes, the genie is out of the bottle, Johnny. You can't put the genie back in the bottle. We are in for a very, very rocky few years, possibly up to 10 or 15 years, as a tiny community in this country. Ironically, it's... Don't use that word. <laughs> You see, it took me such a long time. I tried to, I tried to find a word to use the most, uh, well, it was the ironic word, anyway. But it's correctly used here. Ironically, it's when you actually took a step back from your activism that actually you created the biggest headline for when the chief rabbi or the former chief rabbi started talking about the most anti-Semitic comment he'd heard in public life since Enoch Powell about um, Zionists in the broadest sense of the word not understanding English irony particularly those who've lived here nearly or all of their lives Rich, that was Jeremy Corbyn talking about you Yeah, well this is why I don't he said that I don't understand English irony if he said I don't understand irony that would have been rude I would have taken it personally but I wouldn't have taken it as a racist slur but even as Majid Nawaz said on LBC he had a whole couple of programmes about it you know that comment othered not just me but vicariously it, it, it othered you and it othered the rest of the 280,000 Jews in this country it basically implied that we don't belong in this country, that we don't understand uh, an English facet, we, we don't grasp Englishness, um, and even though we lived here most of our lives, on the same direction, basically implying that you know, he didn't see us really as being part and parcel of British society. Talking of uh, extremism in Western countries, um, America is even ahead of us with Ilhan Omar talking in quite profoundly anti-Semitic fashion. A mealy-mouthed apology uh, issued yesterday about her anti-Semitic tropes, but an insistence that there was still some kind of Jewish lobby for which she wasn't going to apologise for. So an equivocal apology, a non-apology in many ways. This is going to happen in our own parliament. As you say, the generation growing up who are admiring of Jeremy Corbyn will become politicians and will outwardly speak about that in the House of Commons after this next election or the one after that. It's not just... Uh, we're already seeing it in Parliament, Johnny, but 
It's also the major charities we're seeing, like Amnesty International, is dedicating itself to the delegitimization of Israel constantly. Um, it, it, no, what's so, so upsetting is the amount of money that charities should have to help proper causes of disabled, poverty. The amount of millions of pounds is being targeted towards Amnesty International, for example. And they are using so much of their resources, literally on the delegitimization of the Jewish state. Um, they produce paper after paper, campaign after campaign against Israel. Uh, a huge, sad waste of resources that is going into the wrong places. You might want to, you know, these uh, NGOs might criticise the Conservative government for all their... Um, the hard lives that they're creating for certain people possibly but these charities are wasting millions of pounds which could be going to better causes so we're seeing um, across the board uh, these uh, people already existing they've already come out of the universities they're already in place in charities they're in parliament uh, politician after politician are delegitimizing Israel already. The Palestine Solidarity Campaign uses a lot of Labour politicians. This is what I was seeing. It wasn't just um, the everyday person who was going and attending these anti-Israel events. The Palestine Solidarity Campaign, remember, that stands for the total annihilation and obliteration of the Jewish state via what they call the right of return of Palestinian so-called refugees to Israel, they harness the political power of Labour politicians who then are invited to come to speak at their events and partake in these lies and the delegitimization of Israel. And because innocent minds see these academics at their universities, the professors at the universities, the politicians they admire, because they, the, the young student sees all these people who they admire come out with these lies and delegitimization of Israel, they believe what they hear, because why would they have any reason to doubt highly respected individuals come out, why would they suspect that they would be coming out with lies when they, in fact, some of the stuff you hear not just lies, but total anti-Semitism. So here is the real mood music of Britain in the uh, tens and going into the twenties that Len McCluskey dismissed it as. Richard, my family's been here since 1866 on my father's side, 1939 on my mother's side. I think you come from a, a similar kind of um, roots and background to me in terms of time in this country. What is the future of the British Jewish community? Yeah, well, my parents, I think they came here after the pogroms in 1905 in Poland, thank God. Otherwise, we wouldn't be sitting here, probably. Um, what we're seeing, many people make start to make Aliyah. Um, the latest being Mark Lewis and Mandy Blumenthal, who've, who've, made, who've made the move to Israel. I think in the back of our minds we all think that we could also make that move. We're all grateful for Israel's existence because we're not in the same position that we were, thank God, before Israel's existence. Um, my only uh, wish is that I know that Israel is strong, but my, my only wish is you can't take anything for granted, and I just wish that we as a community in this country that there'd be more of us speaking out. There is a small, hardcore 
who are speaking out and there are more who are starting to speak out and it's fantastic that there are high profile celebrities who are speaking out but we are not explaining Israel enough we are not really explaining the narrative of why Israel does certain things why Israel is uh, why there are Jews living in certain areas that many parts of the establishment don't agree with uh, for example what they call the West Bank um, so I wish that was our future and I think that is our future I believe that our future is explaining the Israeli narrative more that the more more people that speak up against anti-semitism I hope that we can now use that as a way to explaining why Israel has a right to exist because many people don't even really get that they see it as a religious state which is an, uh, an anomaly maybe in today's world to an extent but we need to explain why Israel exists why it needs to exist and why it's where it is in that part of the world as opposed to any other part of the world it's the Jewish historic homeland or the Jewish historic sites are there and I hope that more and more of us can start to explain that to the general population why it's important and why it's there and why it needs to continue to be there. Thank you so much to everyone who's contributed and listened. All my podcasts are available on iTunes and SoundCloud and donations always welcome on patreon.com slash Johnny Gould. For those of you who've done that, thank you. And also thank you for listening. <laughs>